Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com. When you go to thejazzsession.com, you'll find Amazon links, and if you use those to purchase the music, even if you, I usually link to the MP3 versions of the album, but even if you click through those links and you buy something else entirely, or you buy the CD version, a little piece of your purchase price, or if you buy a car or a beach house or anything, uh, a little piece of your purchase price will come back to the jazz session. And just let me just say right off the top here, I, I would encourage you to buy a house or a car because a, a significantly larger piece of your purchase price will benefit the jazz session. So let's just all make a pact together, shall we? Let's all jazz session listeners, would you go on Amazon right now and just buy a house, but first, you know, click through from the jazz session? Thank you very much. And and then I can stop doing this. Thank you. Uh, what else? Well, that's enough for the housekeeping. And I'll just tell you now, there's a new 4CD box set that is coming out uh, called CTI, The Cool Revolution. And I've just seen the the version of it that they send, you know, to, to radio people or whatever, which is, you know, your standard little box set. But the real thing is a, an LP-sized box set, although it's CDs. And uh, one lucky listener to this show is going to get a chance to win that box set. And uh, here's how you do it. You just be the first person to send an email to contest at thejazzsession.com. That's contest at thejazzsession.com with CTI in the subject line. Okay? CTI in the subject line. Uh, So send that email, and the first person to send it in wins a copy of this gorgeous box set. My guest today is Don Sebesky. He produced, uh, not only produced and wrote music for and arranged uh, many of these fantastic CTI recordings. And uh, we'll just start with the very first thing on the box set. It's a classic, Stanley Turrentine and Sugar.
My guest is a legendary a producer, recording artist, Grammy winner, Tony winner, everything winner, Don Sebesky. He uh, is one of the driving forces behind a new uh, four-CD box set of CTI Records, uh, a, a classic label that brought many of the great names in jazz uh, during the, the 70s and afterward. And the new box set is called The Cool Revolution. It's my pleasure to welcome Don Sebesky to the show. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Uh, I think uh, for many people, CTI Records, it's, it's been long enough now that there are probably maybe even a generation of listeners who aren't quite as familiar with CTI. Can you tell folks a little bit uh, about the label? And I'd also be interested uh, in hearing how you got involved. Well, of course, the label uh, started off as Verve. We started off in, in, in under the umbrella of Verve, and then we moved to A&M, and the CTI logo was a subsidiary of A&M for a while until it became its own label. And from that point, it started to take off and really establish its own identity. And uh, uh, it's, it's a brand that, that became established, as you say, in the 70s and in the 80s and uh, brought to a recording studio um, some of the greatest jazz artists in the, in, in the whole world, Wes Montgomery and, and George Vincent and Freddie Hubbard and so many more others that uh, it was just a blast to, to be able to participate in some of those recordings that were just... Uh, um, classics that have become classics. So uh, I'm proud to have been a part of it. Now the CT in CTI stands for Creed Taylor, who right. uh, had had been a, a a very well known producer in his own right. Uh, was there was there something you think that uh, that Creed and you and and others were hearing uh, that necessitated the formation of this label? Was there some sound that you wanted to capture kind of some philosophy of the music or whatever it might have been uh, that necessitated the, the creation of a new label? Well, the creation of the label was because we realized that we had a specific uh, a specific slant. It was Creed, actually. Creed's idea was that he had he was trying for a specific slant to his uh, to his uh, stable, and uh, he felt that it would their needs would thus be served under uh, under the the new the new uh, the new title. Um, and his basically his idea was to take all these great jazz artists and and give them from time to time material that leaked over into the pop world so that their audience that that, that heretofore existed for them only from the jazz community would then spill over into the pop community and the two of them could enjoy the music together. So, for instance, West Montgomery, we would do we did stuff like. Um, um, uh, you did albums of Beatles music and things Beatles like that. Beatles music, example, right? exactly. I was trying to think of that. Which particular one? Uh, which particular one? I remember a particular day when Creed called me to his office and played me uh, the, this record, the Beatles record. I, I heard the news today. Oh boy, a day the, in the, the life. Right? This one, the war. What's the name of that song? A day in the life. Day in the life. He called me into the office and we put that on the turntable and we both start to smile because we start to hear the possibilities and how to fit Wes's unique sound into that framework. And make it into a jazz record that took that took into account the 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 the, the material that the Beatles were putting in there and the popularity of it. Well, actually, it hadn't even come out yet. We were just we we had just anticipated that it was going to be a gigantic hit, which of course it was. So that's what we did. We, we that's what was what was Creed's philosophy in the time is to enlarge the audience of every of every jazz artist he had on his label, so that when they went. When when they went to buy the records, they had they had their choices. I mean, not every track was that way. I mean, they were, it was intermixed with standards and, and new originals too. But there were always a couple of uh, tunes that were 
relevant to the jazz, to the pop world and uh, so consequently when it, when one of the artists would go play a club they would line up around the block to hear those one or two pop tunes but they, then they would be forced to listen to their the rest of their repertoire which was jazz so it rubbed off on both on both of them and i think that was basically the philosophy so uh, i think it worked pretty well for quite a long time We know that e- even we're talking about the 1970s. I mean, this is 2010, and it's still the case that if uh, if a jazz artist records material from the the pop world, or if a jazz festival books, you know, Al Green in, as one of its headliners, that there are always there's always a segment of people who say, "What are you doing? That's not what jazz is." That's not purist, right? Exactly. Well, there, there was a lot of there was some resentment at the time, as I recall, from from different uh, labels, different camps that. There was one I remember in particular that said that Creed Taylor ruined Wes Montgomery's career, but uh, see, the thing is, Wes didn't see it that way, and uh, he was actually very happy to be placed in that frame of reference where he knew that his audience was going to be expanded, because he got plenty of chance to play the blues and play whatever he wanted to play uh, in exchange for recording uh, uh, one, of those, uh, one of those hits that everybody had on their lips during, during those years. So. Um, you know, I think that it's it's a trade-off. I mean, uh, there is there is such a thing as being pure jazz, and that's perfectly fine. And and there were labels who catered to that. Blue Note was one, and and uh, Contemporary, and uh, several labels, and and th- and that's perfectly fine. They have a right to do to do the, the kind of music that they they felt served their needs. Uh, so it, it was just a difference in philosophy and. Uh, and marketing, and um, so so everybody kind of has to do what they need to do. Yeah, there's also a nice level of hypocrisy involved in that because you know the man I love wasn't written for people to take 20 minute solos over. People just decided to do that. I mean, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> well, pop, yeah. pop music's I been mean, part the of the jazz canon you know, forever. I guess, <laughs> uh, those standards became so mixed in with the jazz repertoire on their way, uh, as they both came up together that they became one. So even now on TV, you see there's this thing called music choice where you see. Uh, these different categories of uh, they call them jazz, blues, singers, and swing, and they're all mixed together. They all they all kind of cross over from one into the other, and uh, 
it, it's just the way it is. I mean, you never know when an inspiration is going to come from a pop tune or from a. a I mean, I, I just heard a Bill El, a Bill Holman album that I have where he did an arrangement of the Tennessee Waltz. For goodness' sake, I mean, it's just a, <laughs> it, it's just where inspiration comes from, or maybe your tongue's in your cheek, and maybe you you have an idea that's going to sound a little different. So everyone kind of has to just uh, do what's best for them, you know. I mean, but um, anyway. Don, you said something there that uh, that piqued my interest about uh, the artists agreeing to not only agreeing, but in many cases being eager uh, yeah. to cover this kind of material. That that was the case during the CTI years that there was kind of a collaboration between the production side and the artists about the nature of the material. Oh, absolutely. We would have philosophy meetings once a month or so, and 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 get together the artist, uh, the producer. Uh, I was there. And whoever else might have been relevant to the production that at that time, kicking ideas around and trying to establish a frame of reference for the entire album where the mixture of the uh, influences was balanced, so that it didn't go didn't go too heavy on one side too heavy on the other side. It was it was it was a, it was a very democratic process at the time. Creep had the the basic idea usually. He had an idea. He had a kind of a vision of how he wanted a particular album to sound. For instance, he asked me one. I don't remember the name of the album, which was for West Montgomery. I think it might have been Down Here on the Road, Down on uh, Road Song, or Down Here on the Ground, or one of those records where he said to me, you know, I'd really like to have a, a set of backgrounds in this album that kind of uses Renaissance instruments and, and, and kind of uses those kinds of colors. So that was a predetermined choice that the, the producer made, and it was my job to fulfill that request in as organic a way as possible, uh, given the limitations. So that, that, that's how that happened. But, but often, as often as not, I mean, we would bring in originals and we would put them on the table and play them, and then and, and everybody would agree on the balance. On the balance of material, <clears throat> I would go home and write uh, some loose, loose uh, uh, guide, guide arrangements because I'm not sure if you, we haven't talked about that, but I think maybe it's a good time to talk about it now. Is the way we recorded those records. Uh, 
the very first time when McCree reached out to me and said, "Would you like? I want you to do this Wes Montgomery album." And I had never met Creed before, so we 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 went into the studio with Wes and his quintet, and all the stuff that we were going to have in the background. I wrote complete arrangements with strings and horns and whatever it was. Uh, and he was sitting in the studio, and he well, he wasn't playing well, and he was. You can see he wasn't smiling anymore. He usually had such a big smile on his face. I can see him right now, still in front of me, 40 years later. And he was unhappy, and I went up to him, and I said, what's wrong? He said to me, he said, man, these cats went to Juilliard. I can't compete with them. So it makes you smile, doesn't it, to have a world-famous, fabulous, <laughs> genius guitar player say, man, those cats went to Juilliard. And, and, and Worth, of course, didn't read music, but he sure the heck could play it. So we, we sent everybody home and kept Wes and his quartet and we recorded the basics and later on overdubbed everything else and decided it was such a good formula for clarity, even for clarity of recording, that we decided to make that the way we, re we recorded everything from that point on. So, so going back to our meetings, after the meeting was over, I would go home and write a loose framework of an arrangement that allowed for unprepared, spontaneous deviation in the studio from any and all so that we weren't locked into any any amount of uh, predetermined uh, length or anything so that then I just took that loose framework and then when I after I got the tape so my refi refined everything I did and then we took advantage of every little new nuance that was contributed by Herbie Hancock and by the uh, by by uh, Ron Carter and everybody who participated spontaneously contributed some little echoes that reverberated through the arrangement from that point on because it became part of the communal experience. It was a communal experience at that time. So that was it was so it was so gratifying to be involved with these fantastic jazz musicians who who shared their expertise over and over and over again. I mean. one particular time we were doing concierto this album with Jim Hall and Paul Desmond and, and all those and Chet Baker and all those fabulous jazz stars that I grew up grew up learning from in high yeah, school yeah one of my one of my favorite records absolutely. absolutely so we're sitting in the studio Creed 
Ruth Van Gelder, the engineer, and I, and, we're, and we said the tape is rolling. That was the first take. Concerto. And then start to play. Five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes. We looked at each other without say, really saying a word. Finally, I said to them, are we getting paid to do this? And, and after 20 minutes, we just sat there silently because we realized we had a take that was perfect. No one, there was no preparation. Everybody just gelled and interacted uh, uh, in a, in a, in a uh, uh, telepathic way that is very rare. And we, just, we decided that was the one and only take. We would never get a take better. We'd get a different take, but not any better. And it had a uniqueness and a, and a, and a purity of line that you still can hear today. When you say it's one of your favorite records, it's one of my favorite records, too. You hit on something there that uh, strikes me as one of the hallmarks of CTI, which was a real focus on on production values. Not to right. say that that previous labels hadn't cared about the way the record sounded, but it seems like like the production of the record was an integral part of what CTI was about. It was how the artist was surrounded seemed to be really at the core of of what CTI was doing. Is that is that accurate, or would you? Yes, that's accurate. And the the, uh, the recording process itself had had Rudy Van Gelder's stamp all over it. He used his own special microphones, he used his own, and that's why he liked um, he liked the way we recorded, because it enabled him to isolate the the different segments of the total record into different different uh, parcels, uh, and that way he had control over the interaction and, and nothing leaked into anything else so that he could make a finished product that reflected his technical expertise at the time as well. Don, you said when uh, when Creed Taylor came to you initially, you and he had never met. How is it that he uh, approached you about uh, joining the CTI family? Just called me on the telephone and said, "Once you do this record, come on over." 
And, and how did he know to approach you? How, how do you think he decided to select you? I never did find out, but I, uh, I assume he had heard some other records I had done and, and uh, was looking for someone who he felt would be compatible with Wes at that time. That was my first record. Wes Montgomery's record of bumping on Verve. That was my first, my first exposure to either, to either Wes or Creed. <laughs> That's quite, quite a start. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, you know, it, it was such a different time then. It was such a golden era, really, looking back, because, um, um, well, we we were given a lot of freedom, and, uh, boy, that's, especially for a writer, that's so, so gratifying to, to for somebody to say to you, uh, you know what you're doing? I don't, I don't have to tell you. I just, it's just a couple of little suggestions here and there, and, and you're free to modify them and uh, just to go do your best and bring in as many, bring in as many, if you can imagine a day like this, bring, add as many musicians to the background as you think you need. I mean, many times we had Rudy Van Gelder's uh, Woodline studio crammed with about 40 musicians. <laughs> so, so, you know, it was, but, but it all worked. I mean, it had the acoustics of a concert hall. One thing that uh, strikes me about this uh, box set, The Cool Revolution, is that if you start going through the names, uh, Stanley Turrentine and his tune, Sugar, Chet Baker, Freddie Hubbard, uh, George Benson, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Grover Washington Jr., if you start mentioning these names, one thing that, that unites them is that they are jazz musicians of whom people have actually heard. Like, like yeah. it, it would be possible probably to go out on the street even today and find several people who've heard of some of these names. Sure. Uh, and I have to believe that that's not totally divorced from the way CTI approached uh, the music thematically. I mean, it seems like that raised the profile of many of these musicians in the eyes of the general public, the people who wouldn't have found their way to these people otherwise. Probably. That's true, absolutely true. They, they, and in fact, uh, that was Creed's basic philosophy, is to enlarge the audience of both segments, the jazz, the jazz, the jazzers and the pop people, and then they came together in a, sort of in a middle ground. Uh, there were some artists who leaned one way or other uh, to pure jazz or, or into fusion at that time. The Grover's material was more linked a little bit to R&B, and, 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 and uh, there were those artists who, who, 
who we had on the label, um, and then those who were pure jazz people uh, like Chet and uh, and Paul Desmond, who 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 were pure jazz guys and who whose material uh, to to a large degree was 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 slanted that way. But uh, there was always a tune that we would slip in that uh, we felt had a little had the potential to cross over into airplay that that would bring in a, a, a someone other than the pure jazz listener. Now, Don, we're uh, mostly focusing on on your career as a as a producer here, just because of the nature of this box set. But you also appear on it uh, yeah. with a, with a track called "Song to a Seagull" that features Paul Desmond. Can you tell us about this tune and the album from which it came? Well, the album was called Giant Box, and uh, it was a double album. And um, gosh, it, looking back, uh, comparing it to times now, I mean, uh, they 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 spent so much money on. They created this this box with two two. Two uh, LPs in it, and a, and a and a booklet of photographs uh, taken of all the people who appeared in in the album. All these jazz stars: Paul Desmond, Milt Jackson, uh, Freddie Hubbard, uh, Jim Hall. Uh, gosh, it was it was a it was an all star. It was an all star uh, collaboration, and um, uh, and it was it was. Uh, I guess that was Paul's basic uh, Starshine track because we tre- we featured a different musician on every track. Uh, we had uh, uh, one whole side of one of the LPs was devoted to a uh, a combination of Fire- Stravinsky's Firebird with a tune by John McLaughlin called Birds of Fire. Uh, the title the titles are so similar it sort of jumped out at me. I combined them into one combined melange that. Uh, that 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 uh, kept bouncing back and forth between the two the two kinds of sounds, and then we had an orchestral background where we used some of the some of the original Stravinsky, and it it had a it had a quality to it where where the uh, the, the ingenuity of Stravinsky and the spontaneous jazz uh, improvisation kind of interacted, and I would have hoped liked to have thought that that had Stravinsky heard it, he might have approved. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just have the feeling he, if 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 he were if he were uh, in the right frame of mind, he might have approved of it. I hope so. Yeah, he was not a conservative composer, so yeah, that was good. That was like good. Stand a good chance. Yeah, really. <laughs> Thank you. 
Uh, the, the third disc in this uh, in this CTI Records overview it deals with Brazilian music, and uh, you know the the first two tracks are uh, Jobim and Astrid Gilberto, so you know that you're not messing around. Uh, Erto's on here, Deodato. Yeah. Uh, was there a uh, was there a, a moment or a connection or a, a a a personal connection that led to Brazilian music being featured so prominently on CTI? Something that that Creed had, or uh, a particular interest that you had? Well, we all entered. We all we were all interested in it. But Creed, Creed saw the potential in taking the bossa nova movement and and popularizing it. That's so he he's responsible for all those early records with Stan Getz and Astrid and and Jobim and and I mean some of that music is is just phenomenally phenomenally beautiful and uh, and and I think that we owe him for 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 nothing else for 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 bringing all that. Brazilian stuff to the American public, and it became, it became, we didn't change a note of it or 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 modify it in any way. It became pop music. People, people attached themselves to it as if it were a pop song. All those, all those great original songs and all that stuff. So, so no, it's Creed. I was, I think, basically that credit goes to Creed. Of course, we all enjoyed Brazilian Brazilian music, and everyone wanted to do it. And it's amazing if you listen. <clears throat> I mean, it's amazing if when you listen to the difference between an, even a single note or a single note, single chord played by a Brazilian, how uniquely different it is by the same chord played by an American. You have to you you, you have to smile when you hear. It's hard even to put into words what the difference is, but it's a unique inborn tendency to play one way and play in a way that's different from anybody the way anybody else would play it we all love brazilian music we've all done brazilian albums but you can tell when they're being played by brazilians and when they're not so it's just quite a quite a unique experience Don, you've obviously, uh, you know, CTI was uh, not not the end for you. you you've continued to have an amazing career, uh, you know, full of uh, incredible productions for the, the stage, and you've won Grammys, as I mentioned, and Tony. Um, but it sounds uh, pretty clear as I listen to you talk, like uh, this period at CTI uh, was a was a special time for you. As it has, still oh, has a place great. in your it was, it was so great because well, uh, the very basic reason is that 
being a writer, I, the thing I enjoy most is the writing process. So I, I, I was always being, I was always writing something that was interesting to me, and and uh, and, and knew that next month there was going to be another project that was going to be interesting to me. It was a time for of a lot of recording and. These other guys, the guys who I wrote for, Wes and 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 Freddie and everybody, they they came into the studio as a tangential activity to their traveling and and performing. They were performers, so so they would go from the from the studio out to perform all over the country in clubs, and they were traveling. But I was just sitting in my barn writing the notes that they were going to come into play next month. <laughs> so I got the best of both worlds. I got to just keep writing and writing and imagining what they were going to sound like and. When they came in for a couple of days in the studio, I enjoyed their their company, and we had a great time, and it's like a party. And then they went out again, and I wrote some more, and it was just the best. My guest is Don Sebeski. He's one of the creative forces behind CTI Records. There's a new box set uh, just coming out called CTI Records, The Cool Revolution, put out by Sony Masterworks Jazz, and it features uh, all of the great names and many more that we've talked about uh, during this interview. Uh, Don, it's it's uh, such a pleasure to have this music and, uh, and such a, an honor to talk to you about it. I really thank you for taking the time to do it. Uh, the pleasure is mine, and I thank you for, for asking. music from the new CTI box set The Cool Revolution on Sony Masterworks and remember the first person to send an email to contest at thejazzsession.com with the subject line CTI will win a copy of this gorgeous box set my thanks to Don Sebeski for coming on the show to talk about it 
This is The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at TheJazzSession.com. And uh, when you go there, you'll find Amazon links to help you purchase the music you hear on the show. And you'll also find a donate button if you'd like to give something back. My friends in the Respect Sextet recorded uh, the theme music for this program. They've got a wonderful record called Farcical Built for Six that came out recently. And you will find them at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who wrote the jazz... No, he didn't. He didn't write anything. He designed the Jazz Sessions logo. I got confused because Dave's brother Jeff wrote the liner notes for the Respect Sextet, and I had that uh, going in my head. And I just get confused from time to time. Thank you so much for listening. It's uh, it's a pleasure to have you along. I'll just remind you, because I haven't done this in a long time, that I uh, published a book earlier this year uh, of poetry called Unexpected Sunlight, and you can buy your copy, if you are so inclined, at jasoncrane.org slash store. That's jasoncrane.org slash store. So go out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.